turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7, that's page 182 if you're using the black Bibles that are provided. Our study through the book of Joshua has brought us to chapter 7. And as you're finding that, I want to ask you a question. What is your attitude about sin? What is your attitude about sin, especially your own sin? Would you say, ah, it's no big deal? I know I sin, but nobody's perfect. God understands who I am, and, and I know I'm forgiven in Christ. Well, the title of the message today is, Take Sin Seriously. We will see from Joshua chapter 7 that the Lord takes sin very seriously and he expects us as his people to do the same. Today we'll work through Joshua chapter 7 under four headings. But before we get to the first one, let's remember the context. Chapter 6 that we considered last week ended on a high note for Joshua and the Israelites, right? Jericho was conquered. God had worked a great miracle causing the walls of Jericho to fall flat. So just put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. You can imagine the rejoicing among the Israelites' camp. Our God is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. Our God is with us. Our God fights for us. So from Israel's perspective, everything was going great. However, verse 1 of of chapter 7 gives us an ominous report. Look at verse 1. But, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. This leads to our first heading. If you're taking notes, Heading number one is report of Israel's sin. Report of Israel's sin. Verse one says, Israel broke faith. The Hebrew term there means a betrayal of trust. That word is used to describe a wife's adultery in Numbers 5.12, but it's most often used regarding God's people breaking the the covenant with the Lord. But again, it just gives you an idea of, of, of what sin is, right? That this... And later in verse 11, God's going to say, Israel has transgressed my covenant. Remember, God had entered into a a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel through the Mosaic covenant. He promised to be their God and to bless them. In return, then, Israel promised to obey God. But we are told here that Israel has disobeyed. They have sinned against God. They have betrayed his trust. How? How did that happen? What did they do? Well, verse 1 explains it, doesn't it? But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan. And then it gives all his, his lineage there, right? Took some of the devoted things. You'll recall in chapter 6 that God, through Joshua, commanded the Israelites what to do when the walls of Jericho fell. 
Listen to verse 17 of chapter 6. Maybe it's, you can see it right there in your own scripture. Chapter 6, verse 17. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Verse 18. To the Israelites, right? But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Right? God was very clear. The Israelites were not to take any of the spoil from the city of Jericho for themselves. The precious metals were to go into the treasury of the Lord. Everything else was to be devoted to destruction, which meant it was to be burned. It was to be totally destroyed like an offering to the Lord. And we talked about last week that that God was punishing the Canaanites for their gross wickedness as well as keeping Israel pure. And in addition, with this first victory, this, this initial defeat there of Jericho, it was a, this devoting to destruction was a symbolic way of showing that everything belonged to the Lord. It was like giving God the first fruits. Bottom line is God commanded it. And he was very clear on what they were to do. Even warning them, right, and before it happened, that failure to destroy the devoted things would make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction. But here in verse 1 of chapter 7 We're told that one of the Israelites, this man from the tribe of Judah named Achan, disobeyed. Instead of destroying everything like God commanded, he took some of the devoted things and kept them for himself. And again, we need to understand this was a grievous sin. This is not an unintentional sin. This is not a, I mean, this is a blatant disregard for the covenant, disregard for God's commands. He was taking items that had been devoted to God. Achan was robbing God. And this was even more than what we would call petty theft. Like verse 1 says, this was a breaking of the covenant. Or verse 11 says that they transgressed the covenant. Verse 1 says they broke faith. So in taking the devoted things, Achan was not only stealing, right? And therefore breaking the eighth commandment, but he was also betraying God's trust. It was spiritual adultery. Loving something else more than God. It was... Saying, God, you're not enough. I I need this. I need this to satisfy my soul. It was therefore also a violation of the first commandment. Where God says we are to have no other gods before him. So here, Achan, a man from the tribe of Judah, is the one who took the devoted things. But notice... Verse 1 already already says this, and throughout chapter 7, you're going to notice the word of God speaks of Israel as a whole sinning and breaking the covenant, right? And so we're going to see from this passage that one man's sin infected the nation as a whole. In fact, look at how verse 1 ends. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Because of Achan's sin, the holy, righteous anger of the Lord was against the people as a whole. Which leads us then to our second heading, result of Israel's sin. We, the reader, have had the report of Israel's sin. Now we see already the result of Israel's sin. The anger of the Lord's burning against the people. Now keep in mind as we go through this account... 
Here in verse 1, we the readers have been told about Achan's sin, right? But Joshua and the rest of Israel doesn't know about it. So in verse 2, Joshua is just continuing with the conquest like he thought he was supposed to do. Look at verse 2 with me. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out, it, spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up from there, from the people. Should be easy victory, right? But look what happens in verse 4. And they, the Israelites, <laughs> fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. What a tragic turn of events. The small city of Ai defeated Israel, killing 36 men and chasing the rest of the attacking Israelites and causing them to flee. Now some commentators will place some of the blame for this on Joshua and the Israelites saying, well, they didn't pray and they were overconfident, just sending a small force. But I don't think that's where we should go with this. I mean, the... The passage as a whole makes it clear that what, co- what caused Israel's defeat, that it is because of Achan's sin that God was against Israel. So we see Joshua's response to the defeat in, in verse 6, right? You know, this, he sends them up expecting a victory. 36 men are killed, the rest are fleeing back. Look at Joshua's response. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? You see how Joshua's just mourning before the Lord. Literally in the presence of the Lord, before the ark of the Lord, right? The the symbol of God's presence. He and the elders are just in, in mourning, crying out. And Joshua cries out to the Lord in a complaint. And this is instructive for us, by the way. Joshua's prayer, while it may sound similar to what some of the Israelites would do in the wilderness, uh, that generation that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, Joshua's prayer is different from their unbelieving complaints when they were wandering. No, Joshua's prayer are words of despair, not unbelief. In other words, he's complaining to God. He's not complaining about God. He, he has questions, he's, he's confused, he's bewildered. But I think this is still a faithful prayer here. It's a believing prayer. He's saying, Lord, you said you would be with us. You said you would drive out the nations before us. What is going on? Remember, Joshua doesn't know about Achan's sin at this point. He doesn't know why God gave Ai the victory over them. But Joshua knows that this defeat could spell disaster for Israel. 
I mean, it's sad enough, the life, lives that have already been lost, but now when word of Israel's defeat reaches the other nations, well, that could embolden the other nations. That could motivate them to say, hey, let's all go and, and just snuff out Israel right now. Wipe them out. No wonder the, people, the people's hearts were melting, right? It says at the end of verse 5. Where did we hear that before? Where have we been hearing that phrase? The, the people's hearts melted. That had always been used to describe Jericho, hadn't it? But now the tables are completely turned. It's God's people whose hearts are melting because something's going on. God is, his face is not shining on them right now. Not only is Joshua concerned about Israel's survival, but notice Joshua also cares about God's glory. If the Canaanites attack and wipe out Israel, then God's reputation is going to be soiled. The nations will say things like, well, yeah, the God of Israel, he did a, he did a couple of powerful things, but man, he brought Israel into the Canaan and only to see them wiped out, only to see them annihilated. So Joshua cares about God's reputation. He even kind of uses a wordplay here, cutting off Israel's name would bring shame to God's name. By the way, that's a good way to pray, isn't it? We... we Back in Exodus, uh, after the golden calf incident, you see Moses praying and mediating for the people in a similar way. God, don't wipe them out because what will the nation say about you and how you've provided for your people, that you've only brought them out of Egypt to kill them in the wilderness? What a good way to pray, to be focused on God's glory. God, deliver us. God, God help us as a church to, to grow and to walk in holiness, for the sake of your name. Again, Joshua doesn't know Israel has done anything wrong, but he's going to now find out in verse 10, which leads to our third heading, the revealing of Israel's sin. Revealing of Israel's sin. And as I read verses 10 through 12 here, again, notice the corporate language that's being used. Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So you see, he's talking about Israel, he's talking about they, and even the yous are plural there in the Hebrew. So Achan's sin affects all of Israel. This is what um, you know the scholars are will call corporate solidarity. Achan's sin makes all of Israel guilty before the Lord. And we see that at different times in Scripture, don't we? Adam was our federal head. In Adam, we all sinned. Romans 5, in Adam, we're all counted guilty. And again, when we start to say, hey, wait a minute, that's not fair. <laughs> Remember what Romans 5 says. But praise God, there's a second Adam, right? And because of his obedience, even obedience to the point of death on a cross, and, and his victory over sin and death, now all who are in Christ through faith are saved. So we like it when it, when it results in blessings, Right? Sometimes, especially in the Old Covenant here, 
One man's sin can affect all the people. Achan's sin makes all of Israel guilty before the Lord. So notice God spells it out here very clearly. Because Israel has taken the devoted things for themselves, and thereby they've not offered them to the Lord, right? And that's what they were doing when they were destroying them. They were offering them to the Lord, saying, God, these are yours. But because they've taken them for themselves, now Israel has become devoted to destruction. And so God says, he will be with them no more unless they destroy the devoted things. So that is huge, right? Nothing is more crucial to Israel than the presence of God. Again, I hearken back to that incident after the golden calf when, when Moses is, is praying and pleading and mediating. That, that's, what he, that's what he's pleading for. God, we need you. We, you must go with us. That's what makes us distinct. We're doomed without you. Likewise here. Same, same uh, reality. Joshua and the people, they need God's presence. If God is no longer with them, they are doomed. I mean, this, the, the battle of Ai proved it, right? That's just a foretaste of what's going to happen. God's not going to fight for them. God's not going to bless them. Unless they get rid of the devoted things, they will be the ones who are destroyed. Again, God makes it very clear. Unless they... Israel is going to be destroyed by the nations unless they destroy the devoted things that are among them. So, okay, God's revealing things to Joshua, isn't he? Well, now Joshua knows that someone has sinned by taking the devoted things. And Joshua knows what he's supposed to do about it. Those devoted things must be destroyed. But Joshua still doesn't know who has done this, right? The sin needs to be dealt with. So now, beginning in verse 13, God gives Joshua instructions for how specifically to do that. And that leads us to our fourth and final heading as we work through the passage. The removal of Israel's sin. Right? That's what he's told Joshua to do. You need to remove this sin. You need to purge it out. You need to take care of it. And here's how you can remove it. Verse 13. Get up. Second time he's told Joshua, right? There's work to do here. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So you see what God's saying? He's through this process, through the Lord is going to reveal who has taken the devoted things and then Israel must take that man and all that he has and burn him with fire. And verse 15 shows why the penalty must be so severe. This sin is serious. It's a breaking of the covenant. It's an outrageous thing, it says in verse 15, which means, literally means behaving treacherously. This is an outrageous, this is a treacherous thing that has been done against the Lord. So Israel's told to consecrate themselves, to prepare for this process. 
this process is going to involve them coming before the Lord, so they must consecrate themselves, get ready for it. Because it's going to happen the next day. So, verse 16. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zarahites was taken. Right now you see why at the beginning it gave Achan's lineage, right? I mean, it's like bit by bit, it's just being narrowed down to him, right? Middle of 17. And he, and he was brought near, and he brought near the clan of the Zarahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. So, through the casting of lots, God sovereignly directed the process to systematically whittle things down by tribe, by clan, by household, and then finally, the exact man, Achan, is the guilty one. Now let me ask you, what was Achan thinking about during this whole process, right? Can you imagine? I mean, I think everybody was probably on edge, but Achan knew he was guilty, Achan knew he was the one who had sinfully taken the things from Jericho. You know what we don't see, by the way? Achan confessing sooner, right? You know, I mean, the minute people were assembled, you know, Achan could have said, you know what, it was me. I did it. I was wrong. I don't don't know. I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know if he was paralyzed by the process or if he had stubbornly just hardened his heart but he doesn't confess until he's caught through the process he didn't come clean on his own rather his sin was exposed isn't that a lesson the bible teaches us again and again we cannot hide our sin right be sure your sin will find you out it's going to be exposed Verse 19, and then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, I, Joshua's obviously not being sarcastic here. I mean, he really wants God to be glorified. He wants Achan to confess, to, to come clean, to tell. Maybe he's even Lovingly trying to prompt Achan to cry out for mercy. I I don't know. Verse 20, Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath Notice Achan's confession. Look at the verbs. (laughs) I saw. I coveted. I took. What does that remind you of? What pattern does that follow in Scripture? Of sin and temptation. The very first one. Eve in the garden. This is the same way 
almost verbatim, but the same, similar way that Eve's temptation and sin is described in Genesis 3, 6. Let me read it for you. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Saw, desired or coveted, took. These are the same tactics that Satan uses over and over and over. Nothing new under the sun, right? And you know, as we think about that, really the root of it is covetousness, isn't it? To covet means to desire something that is not yours and that you have no right to have. And if you, you know, really, when you think about even our lives as Christians, this is where the battle happens for us every day. (laughs) Sin no longer reigns, but it still remains. We have sinful desires. And when those sinful desires want something that God has said no to, what are we going to do in that moment? Will we submit to God because he is God and I'm trusting that he's good and that he wants what is best for me? For Achan in that moment, his answer to that question, am I going to submit to God? Am I going to trust that God is good and that he's not holding anything good from me? That his ways are best? Achan's answer in that moment was no. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to submit. I'm not going to trust. I'm not going to believe God. I'm not going to obey God. When he saw the cloak, the silver, the gold, those things mattered to him more than the glory of God. Those things mattered to him more than the good of his fellow Israelites. And so he took them. Verse 22. Right? Achan's confessed. Now Joshua's going to confirm it. So verse 22 says, So Joshua sent messengers. They ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent, right? the devoted things, right? And brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. Right? So Joshua sends men to Achan's tent. The word, Achan's words are confirmed. They find the devoted things hidden there. They bring out those stolen items. And that's interesting the way that in verse 23 says, They laid them down before the Lord. That verb is actually poured out. They poured them out before the Lord. It's a word that's often used in religious ceremonies. It's like they're returning what belongs to God back to God. And they're pouring it out to him as an act of worship. This is yours, God. It always was yours. Verse 24. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord, same phrase that chapter 6 had warned about, right? Trouble. Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. Notice, by the way, Achan was not a poor man here, right? He had oxen. He had donkeys. Achan was greedy. Achan was selfish. And his self-centered actions affected his whole family. 
and his fellow Israelites. Israel took Achan, the things he stole, along with the things he stole from Jericho, along with Achan's family and proper property. They took them to a valley where they all, where they all were stoned and then burned with fire. And as we saw last week, the devoted things were to be burned with fire as an offering to the Lord. Achan had blatantly broken the covenant with the Lord, so ridding Israel of the stain of his sin required that everything in contact with Achan be destroyed. His livestock, all his possessions, and even his family, and I know that's a little hard for us to to swallow. Perhaps his family had helped in the cover-up, right? I mean... You know, how do you hide the stuff in the tent and not, not other people not know about it? So they might have been guilty that way. And had pers- maybe they had per- personally brought guilt upon themselves. But again, ultimately, Achan has brought this trouble upon his family. And like I said earlier, there, you see that at times in Scripture. And we see a contrast, by the way, between Rahab and Achan, Right? In previous chapters, we've seen that Rahab's faith and obedience led to deliverance for her and her entire family. But here, Achan's disobedience and unfaithfulness has brought destruction upon his entire family. In fact, the contrast is even more stark, or continues, I guess we could say, between Rahab and and Achan. Think about it. Rahab was a Canaanite whose faith led to her salvation and inclusion in the people of God. Here, Achan is an Israelite whose faithless disobedience brought God's judgment and exclusion from God's people. So it's like they're on different trajectories here, aren't they? By stealing the devoted things, Achan had broken the covenant and become devoted to destruction himself. The text says, by the way, this took place in the valley of Achor, which is a play on Achan's name and means trouble. The valley was no doubt given that name because of this incident. And again, I point out the corporate aspect of this. All of Israel took part in this punishment. Achan's sin had infected the entire nation of Israel, so they all play a part in purging this guilt from their nation. And Israel's corporate participation also drove home the important lesson of the seriousness of sin. And notice it was a lesson that they wanted to make sure was remembered for generations to come. Look at verse 26. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore to this day the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. So earlier we saw a rock pile after they, the Lord uh, enabled them to cross the Jordan, right? A, 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 taking the stones from the middle of the Jordan, making a, a memorial so that everyone could remember God's power and how he had miraculously led them across the Jordan. Well, here's another rock pile, another memorial. This one's testifying to God's holiness. It's testifying to the seriousness of sin. It's testifying to the terrible cost of disobedience towards God. By the way, this is similar to the account of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Right? Similar to that situation, God is showing his people right from the outset the, of the danger of sin spreading among God's people and of the devastating consequences that it brings. 
Once the devoted things along with Achan are destroyed, the Lord turned from his burning anger. Israel's relationship with the Lord has been made right. God is once again able to dwell in their presence and drive out the nations before them, which we'll see God do with Ai in the very next chapter, in chapter 8. Well, loved ones, there are many important lessons for us today. We're reminded of the deceitfulness of sin. We're reminded of the danger of sin. Right? Sin looks good. Sin promises pleasure. But where does it lead? It leads to destruction. This fallen world and Satan, who's the prince of the power of this air, he has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy We must believe that. We must remember that. Because in the moment, the temptation is going to look good. In the moment, the temptation is going to be promising pleasure. But like Proverbs says, it's like you do that and it just leads to death. It's It's like a trap. It's like a hook. It's like a snare. And you're caught. It's going to lead to all kinds of hurt. Oh, how we need to remember that by God's grace. So the lesson for all of us from God's word today is take sin seriously. Take sin seriously. And there may be people here today who don't even think that much about sin. And kind of like I started the sermon, you may, you would admit, yeah, I'm not perfect. But I try to be a good guy. I, you know, I, I'm not as bad as a lot of people that are around me, that's for sure. But we need to understand You need to understand, friend, what the Bible tells us about sin. It says that we have all sinned before God, that we've all broken his commands. We've all not given God the love and the worship that he deserves. And the Bible says again and again that sin is serious, that all sin is rebellion against God, that sin is rejecting God's rule. Sin is, in essence, fancying ourselves on the throne when God alone belongs there. Sin is shunning God's love. Sin is refusing God's word. Like I said earlier, sin is believing that God is not enough. Believing that we need something else to make us happy. God and his ways aren't enough to satisfy, so we think. Sin comes from not trusting God, thinking he's holding back something good from us. And as is so clear, sin leaves us guilty before God. All of us, by nature, stand guilty before God. Our sin is an offense to Almighty God, and His holiness demands that our sin is punished. God's justice requires that our sin is met with His wrath, death and separation from God. But praise God, That's not all the Bible says about sin. That's not all the Bible says about God. Praise God that God in his mercy and his grace and his great love has provided a way that we can escape the wrath of God that we deserve. God has sent his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live and die in the place of sinners. And that's exactly what he did. Jesus' sinless life as a man, trusting God, obeying God, His sinless life secured the righteousness that we need in order to be with God. 
And Jesus' sinless life made him then a spotless sacrifice for our sins upon the cross. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. On the cross, Christ bore the full brunt of God's wrath against the sins of his people. Again, God is holy. He's just. Our sin must be punished. But the good news is that for those who believe in Jesus, for those who are united to Christ in faith, their punishment has been paid in full by Jesus Christ. Praise God and hallelujah. Achan's sin left all of Israel guilty. But Christ's obedient life and sacrifice makes righteous all who are united to him through faith. Again, that's what Romans 5 makes so clear. So we heard it from our scripture reading that God in his amazing grace has not destined his people, Christians, for wrath. And earlier in that letter, when Paul is rejoicing about the Thessalonians and the reports he's getting from their faith, he says, you've turned from idols to serve the, the living God and you've learned to wait on the, the Lord Jesus Christ who has delivered us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. What a beautiful statement. If you're in Christ, rejoice in that statement. Jesus, who has delivered us from the wrath to come. Again, there is a day of wrath coming. All these examples in, you know, of God's holiness and of his wrath, you know, being, you know, destroying a family or destroying a city, right? These are all foretastes of what the final judgment's going to look like. Remind us that God is holy and he punishes sin. And when Christ comes back, all those who are not united to him in faith will face God's wrath. But all who are, are delivered. Our sins have been paid for. And so, if you've never turned from your sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you to do that today. That you can escape the day of God's wrath by turning and embracing Christ as Lord and Savior, forsaking your sin, committing to follow him by his enabling. May you do that today. May no one here face the wrath of God. And as Christians, we can rejoice. We can rejoice in the promises of the gospel. Like we have peace, Romans 5 says, Romans 5, 1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Now, as we sang, all we know is grace. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Praise God for that. Praise God that we live in the new covenant, under the new covenant. And that Christ has paid our sin in full. Nevertheless, Christians, let us take sin seriously. Because God still takes sin seriously. May we never be complacent about our sin that caused Christ to suffer and die for us. What, what kind of language does the New Testament exhort believers to regarding their sin? Well, Colossians 3.5 says we are to put to death what is earthly in us. In other words, the sin that remains in us. We're to be ruthless with our sin. And so as I close, I... I 
again, I just challenge you, and I'm, I'm challenging myself this week. Are there sins that you are comfortable with in your life? Areas where, you know, you're, you are convicted and, and maybe you kind of put up a little fight, but you've almost just kind of given up, you know, just kind of like, well, you know. In other words, compromises. Areas of compromise in your life. I guess I'm just going to, you know, always have a, a lustful heart. I guess I'm just always going to be a gossip. I guess I'm just always going to complain. Right? I mean, we could give a million examples, right? No, may we, God forbid we ever adopt that attitude. God forbid we ever adopt that complacency. Again, praise God, our relationship is secure. We know God loves us. And nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even our own sin, those of us who are in Christ. But may we, by God's grace, strive for holiness. Put to death the sin that remains. Sin is still rebellion. Sin is still an affront to God's holiness. Sin still brings shame to God's name. Sin still hurts others, doesn't it? Another important lesson that comes from this passage, right? No one sins in isolation. You may think you have a private sin. You may think, well, yeah, I know this isn't right, but at least I'm not hurting anybody. Wrong. Wrong. You are hurting others. You're hurting yourself, definitely, primarily. You're not enjoying the sweet fellowship with the Lord that you, you could be enjoying. Secret sin, for one example, secret sin of pornography. That, that's going to affect your future relationships. That's going to affect your relationship with your spouse, future spouse if you're not married. Any of us who are just not battling sin, harboring sin. It affects us, right? It affects our witness. It affects our our joy. It affects how we come together and worship the Lord. We're not doing it in confidence. We're not doing it in faith. We're not using our gifts to encourage one another because we, we feel just defeated and soiled. Plus, again, is... As the New Testament points out, 1 Corinthians 5, sin that goes unchecked in the body can have a spreading effect. It can cause others to get complacent about sin. Kind of have a cavalier attitude. We are the body of Christ. A body made up of individual members. If any member is not walking with the Lord, it weakens their ministry to the body thus negatively impacting the health of the entire church. So let us take sin seriously because God takes sin seriously. As God convicts us of sin, by God's grace, let us repent. And again, I give you an acronym that is not original with me. CAR, C-A-R. As God convicts you of sin, confess your sin before the Lord. It means say the same thing about it. No excuses, no justification. God, that was sin. I am sorry. A, affirm God's love for you in Christ. That's important, right? Satan is the accuser. And so when we, when we are convicted about sin, our, our temptation, what Satan would have us do is just stay away from the Lord. 
Right? He can't take away our salvation, but he can try to ruin our enjoyment of it, you know. Just stay away from the Lord. No, no, no. Remember the gospel. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed your transgressions from us. So that's the A. Affirm God's love for us in Christ. Again and again, the heart of God is is patience and love for his erring children. And this is where we need to be. Again, God doesn't change, but we need to really be careful when we're studying the Old Testament and studying the New Testament. (laughs) In Christ, God's people are forgiven. There's no more wrath for us. So affirm God's love for you in Christ. Okay? Confess your sins before God. Affirm God's love for you in Christ. And then the R is request God's grace to change. That's what repentance is, right? It's it's turning. It's changing. It's going in the opposite direction. Say, God, I, I, I hate this sin. I know it's sin against you. And, and I know Christ has paid for that sin. And you love me. And you've forgiven me. And I thank you for that. Please give me grace to change. And give me grace to walk in the means of grace ongoing. Help me get in your word. Help me pray. Help me get accountability if I need to. Help me to... to actively learn the promises of God so that next time when I'm faced with those temptations and and false promises, I can combat them with the true promises of the gospel. Let us take sin seriously because God takes sin seriously. May we not get comfortable. May we not get complacent. May we strive to grow with the grace that God provides as we do it. Loved ones, we're confident in God's love and forgiveness, and we're pursuing growth in Christ's likeness. Why? For the good of the body and for the glory of his name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for your word. And Lord, again, we praise you and thank you for your grace in sending your son. Lord, we are reminded that who among us could stand before you as the scripture says if you counted our 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 iniquities if you held them to to account against us who could stand we thank you and praise you that our sins have been paid for by christ and lord if there are any here today who don't have that confidence they've never embraced christ as lord and savior i pray you will give them the new birth today Lord, convict them of their sin. Show them their their desperate state before a holy God. Give them a a healthy fear of your judgment. The real judgment that is to come one day. But yet as you do that, point them to the Savior that you have provided. Give them faith to turn from their sins and to trust in Christ alone. Add to your number today, Lord, we pray. And then help us as a people to be holy, to pursue holiness. To not toy with sin, to not coddle with sin. But by your grace, by your spirit, put to death the sin that remains. Thank you for the ministry of your spirit. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in this world. Protect us from evil this week, Lord, we pray. Help us see the deceitfulness of sin and flee the temptations. 
we thank you for that you are more than enough. You are more than enough. Even the foretaste we have now of you is more than enough than anything this world can offer. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, please. We'll worship with a final song and then a benediction.